Um, all right, if you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 5. We are in the Sermon on the Mount. We started this series last week by looking at the Beatitudes. We're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for a while. Um, and this morning, we are jumping right into the, really the content of that sermon. Um, we're going to be looking at just four verses, but there's a lot packed into those four verses in, uh, in Matthew chapter 5. So we, um, we live in a world that is in a natural state of decay. Um, things are breaking down right before us. They're constantly in that state. Um, and that decay is sort of multi multifaceted. It happens in a couple of different ways in a couple of different areas. This last week, I just drove through the forest. I didn't actually drive through the middle of the forest, but you know, there was a road and it was going through two sides of forest at least. And I was driving along that road. And even in, a, it's crazy how even in, a, in an environment of such life and abundance and growth, you see that there is just as much breaking down and decaying amidst the life of nature that we see. Because that is a part of life here um, on this earth and in God's creation, it seems. There is deterioration there is degeneration, there is crumbling, there is decline, there is collapse, there's even disorder, and there's even chaos that comes as a result of this. If you know much about the laws of thermodynamics, which, you know, we all know those, right? Uh, the second law of thermodynamics is a law dedicated to this reality, that things are breaking down. And it says that in all isolated systems, they are in a state of entropy or breaking down or decay. And the best analogy that people use for this often is if there was just a room and that room was sort of self-contained, it was an isolated system, no matter how hard you tried to kind of keep things tidy, eventually it would get dirty and eventually it would start to get messy. You would need someone to come in from the outside of that system to clean it. But in doing so, they would then be taking energy from outside and bringing it inside to help keep this disarray and this uh, entropy from happening. This is why Christians, this is why we believe that it's hard to even conceive of the notion that in a world where so much breakdown is happening, in a universe where so much breakdown seems to be happening, the idea that this would exist without God creating it without God bringing it together and creating us and creating what we see around us, right? Um, it's hard to even imagine that, to, not even to interject himself into creation to do things or into the universal reality to do things, but to have created a reality and a world and a universe in which he is a part of the fabric of that thing. He doesn't have to be interjected into it for things to happen. And this decay isn't just physical, there's relational decay, there's social decay, there's, there's decay amongst us. There's decay as you get groups of people together. I talked a few months ago and I was making reference to The Lord of the Flies, this book that was written years ago that basically is a, is a fictional book though, but it was written by an author after one of the great wars who himself had a very idealistic view of humanity and then went to war and came back and recognized. And he wrote this book and in the book, a group of, uh, of school kids are stranded on an island together and when given the opportunity to create their world, even with the innocence of, ch of being children, 
sin, it turns into chaos and it turns into disunity and it turns into discord, right? Uh, because he says that is, that is the nature of us. That is where we will go. I see it in, we see it in relationships. I see it in my own marriage where it feels like it starts out with so much enthusiasm and, 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 and love and excitement and without proper upkeep, right? Without paying attention to one another and to actually being intentional about our relationship, it will continue, it will, it will decay. It will erode. There will begin to be disunity within our home. We see this in our relationships. And so we're told to not take relationships for granted, but to recognize that they take work, right? Why do they take work? Why does a relationship take work? Because without the work, we know where it's going to go. My house is going to look like Lord of the Flies without work, right? <laughs> Basically, seems to be what God tells us. Now, Jesus comes on the scene, and Jesus is very unpredictable. If anything, Jesus seems to be unpredictable. Um, Jesus is so, he does these things, and he says these things, and sometimes you read about them, and you feel sorry for the disciples as they're following him, and you go, who saw that coming? Even when you think you know what Jesus is going to do, you don't know what he's going to do next, right? Um, just this last week, we've been reading through Matthew together as a church, um, and, uh, or if you've been reading with us as a church, um, through Matthew, just this last week, I was reading about the account of Jesus talking with Peter, telling him about the persecution, the suffering that Jesus was going to undergo. And Peter says, no, no, Jesus, no, that's crazy. You are God's anointed. You're God's, you have authority. You have power. Of course, none of those things would happen to you. And he, he, he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, he says, Peter, that's Satan in you telling you, to say, tell, telling you those things, making you think those things. And he rebukes Peter, who loves him and is just saying, Jesus, you'll be okay. Come on, right? I've been, I've been hanging out with you. I see the power that you have and what you do. Like, who saw that coming, right? But Jesus does these things, and, and, there, and, and much of what Jesus does and much of what he says in the way he lives seems to be unpredictable, and it is very clearly other from what we're used to. And why is that? Because Jesus is the only one who has ever come in to this decaying world and this decaying system and this decaying reality, it seems, and been different from that, okay? So Jesus's otherness is what makes him so surprising and unpredictable much of the time. Up until Jesus, anyone who came, anything that happened, it was in some way tainted or affected by this decay that we see, and Jesus himself was not, with the only the exception of his physical body, because he came and lived in the physical flesh. So knowing all of this, Knowing this is the reality of the world around us, and many people would, would, would argue, you know, that no, we're not in a state of decay. Well, they don't really argue that as much anymore. There was a time years ago when people would say, look, it seems that the knowledge of man, the ability, the invention, the, the, the unity of man, it seems like we're maybe working towards some kind of an apex in which it's, uh, it's like going to be Star Trek, you know, where everyone is at peace and everything, it's all worked out well for us in the end. Uh, but people have come to realize since that time even that that concept, the more we try to make things better, the more it seems to break down. And so Jesus is speaking in that world when he talks to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what he says to them. He says in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, you are the salt of the earth. But as salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory 
to your Father who is in heaven. This is uh, the job description of a disciple in the Sermon on the Mount. We said that last week in the Beatitudes, Jesus is telling them the Beatitudes are a celebration. They're not actually a list of things we're supposed to be trying to do, but they're a celebration of all of those who can be a part of the kingdom of God and who will be blessed. Any kind of person, if they come into contact with the kingdom of God, they will be blessed by the kingdom of God. They will find blessing in the kingdom of God. And he's about to move into the body of the Sermon on the Mount where he says to them, here is how a follower of mine needs to live. Here's what it is to be righteous. And here, in between those two parts, Jesus is saying, if someone is going to be my disciple, be a follower of me, this is what that even means. This is what it means. When someone says follower of Jesus, when someone were to say disciple, what they mean is they mean salt and they mean light. He says, this is your function in the world. This is, this is the usefulness that you'll bring to the world. He starts out in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So life in the Middle East could not have existed without salt, especially at this time. Because salt served as a preservative, it kept things preserved, mostly food, meat, preserved, okay? Without salt and the ability to keep things preserved, you had one of two options. One, you had to, you had to live near animals and meat all the time. You had to live close enough to it to be able to go out and hunt for it and get it. And so you can only go so far from that stuff. Preservation gave us the ability to go further from those things because food lasted longer. The other option was you just had to stop whatever you're doing and find more food every day. And that greatly limited people's ability to do other stuff, other stuff that was, turns out pretty useful for having society. So preservation is huge. The ability to preserve food and to meat and to keep, it was really very much the ability for life to even exist on the level that people were used to it existing at this point. Salt stops decay from happening, it preserves it. It also represented purity at the time because it came from the sea. It was evaporated from the sea and because it was white and so it was seen as like pure because that was what that was seen as. And so the idea for people was it just comes totally from nature. It's this thing, you know, it's like, I don't know, like essential oils or something back then, right? It comes totally from nature and it's this thing that that is how God brings us purity and how he preserves. He gave it to us as a way to preserve things, right? To, to make things last longer. And so Jesus is telling his disciples here, He's saying to be a follower of mine means you're a preserver. You're somebody who comes in to the, to, the, to the decay that they see in some way or another and brings preservation to that. They're gonna slow down the process of decay by being a part of it. That's what it means to be a follower of me. That's the impact that you're gonna make. Now, there is no shortage of people in this world now saying that things are bad saying things are falling apart. That is not a new idea, okay? That is not even the point of what Jesus is saying is, hey, in case you guys didn't notice, things are bad. That's not this part here. He knows that people know that things are bad, that things are falling apart, that things need help. But mostly those who are pointing out how broken everything is are pointing out the wrong things. 
that are broken and they're trying to change them in the wrong ways. And Jesus knows that this will not work. Jesus knows that new rules are not gonna fix things, that more complex rules that specifically speak to our situation will not fix things. He knows that people will not fix things, that leaders, that politicians, that rulers, that they will not ultimately be able to fix these things and stop this from happening. He knows that keeping things the way they used to be won't stop this from happening. It won't change it from happening. He knows that simply identifying a group of people and marginalizing them by saying, if you're silenced, if you don't speak, if you don't share where you think things need to be, then things will be better. Things will be okay. That's not what Jesus is saying either, because we know that that's not true. He's saying simply following popular consensus isn't going to fix everything. Okay, so if we just get enough people to agree how it should be, then of course we can have unity. And of course the decay that we see around us in society will slow down or stop, right? Uh, Yeah, unless maybe the people bringing consensus are themselves somehow decaying, right? Unless this, this problem, whatever it is, seems to go deeper than the heart of just the fact that we can't agree on what rules we want to follow together. So if you're going to preserve things... If you're going to slow them down, then you got to know what caused the problem to begin with. You got to know what causes the decay. Where does it come from? Where did it start? And so you have to go back and back and back to the root of the problem, which we see in the garden. We see God create everything, give man and woman everything that they need and say, I am enough. This is enough. Trust me. And they choose to not trust God. That's the problem. The problem initially isn't lying and cheating and stealing. All those things will come and they will happen. The problem is not trusting God. The problem is that we don't trust God. Okay, this is at the root of the decay that we see around us. We do not trust him when he tells us that he is good. We do not trust him when he tells us that he is enough that he's all that we ultimately need. We struggle to trust these two things. And what we see and what we experience in the world around us is living in a world with people who don't believe these things and trust these things fully. And experiencing the physical breakdown and death that comes from all of that that we read about in the God's word. So if you just try to follow the rules and do the right things of stopping decay, that won't work. That's called religion. People try that. People say, if we can just come up with enough rules, then we'll trust God more because of those rules. We'll come to see something good in all of those rules. But we see that that doesn't slow it down. That just creates a different kind of problem. But there's the alternative as well that often people turn to, which is saying, okay, then if we can just love and respect one another completely and fully, If I can love you and you can love me and I can respect you and you can respect me and we can live in light of that in some way, we can find some way to do that, then the problem will go away and we'll be okay. But the problem is that at the core of that is the belief that we ultimately are the center of everything, right? It is the idea that man himself is the most important thing in our world, that we must exalt ourselves collectively to a point that if we do, then we'll be okay, which is the fall, which is the original sin, which is the idea that we don't need God. God creates everything and he says, you need me, but that's okay because that's how I intended it to be. And you will be free and you will, be, you will thrive and you will have life, which is most important. And instead man said, I want to be without gods. 
my dependence upon God. And so we even look in the other extreme and saying, oh, fine, get away with the rules, get away with all that stuff, because we don't need that stuff to preserve the world around us, to have life go well. We can just love each other enough. If we can just figure out a way to do that enough, then we'll be okay. And that exalts us to a point of being God. And it doesn't work either. So Jesus says that we are to be those who have a function in this world, that we, that we preserve it. And that we do that by first and foremost, trusting God. We do that because we know that the problem that has to be addressed is our lack of trust in God, who is ultimately good and ultimately trustworthy. And the way that he says that we do this effectively is by being distinct. He begins to caution his disciples. If a salt loses its saltiness, it's no good. You have to remain distinct in order to be able to accomplish this. Now, the idea of being distinct is hard. We're not meant to be different for the sake of being different. But chances are, if you do what Jesus talks about, you will find that no matter how much the world around you changes, that you will be distinct from the world around you. Sometimes in some ways, sometimes in other ways. But you will be distinct. And a lot of times, the things that we think he means when he says be distinct and different are not what he means. Because again, we often think like, well, he just means find a new level of way in which to love people no matter what's happening, or find a new degree of way in which to obey a rule and, and, and come up with some new ones, and that's what it is to be distinct. Well, Jesus is saying this at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is it's couched in this, these terms, uh, you have heard it said, but I tell you, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And he's doing that because um, he's taking people's understanding of what it is to be righteous and, and pushing it much further. Sermon on the Mount is living distinctly, okay? Jesus is saying, you think it's murder? You think murder is bad? No, I'm talking about anger in your heart. More than, more than murder and physical aggression and adultery and vengeance, he's saying it is, it is anger. It is lust. It is love of those who hurt you. Not just saying bless their heart. You guys know what that means, right? Bless their heart, bless his heart, right? right? If you live in the South, you know what that means. It's your way of saying like, oh, bless their heart, which means, well, it doesn't mean bless their heart. I'll tell you that much, right? <laughs> but but, but, but he's, he, when he talks about vengeance, right? The old understanding of it is if they do this to me, all I'm allowed to do is that back to them. And Jesus says, guess what? It's gonna be a lot harder than that. If they do that to you, you find a way to love them, to not take vengeance upon them. Even the very idea of prayer, calling down God into your life to do something, when he talks about prayer, one of all the lines has to do with God meeting our needs and our petitions, and every other part has to do with something else, right? How distinct is that from the way that the overwhelming majority of people on this planet who use something like prayer use it? with the idea that the majority of what Jesus says about prayer is not, God, help me right now, but God, let your will be done, the forgiveness of sins, all of these other things that come with talking to God and bringing him into situations. Jesus is calling them to a righteousness that is on a level that is like, that is in a lot of ways to them mind-blowing. And, and that, our, that our world would, would see, it would be very distinct because our world would see it as unnecessary. Uh, most, most of, many of us probably struggle to see it as being necessary, right? 
It's like, no, murder's bad. Don't worry about anger. Everybody feels angry. Everybody feels lustful at times. Everybody wants, everybody should feel the desire to get vengeance. So these are normal things. So we, we can't fight these things and do these things. And we see them as totally unnecessary. Think of it like this. I'm sure we often think this way. If Jesus had a daytime talk show, okay, um, no one would watch that show. Okay, and the reason is because, you know, daytime talk show, Jesus, just the name, it's always the first name, right? It would be like this, welcome back on Jesus, we've got, uh, we've got Mary here who's uh, confronting her husband, confronting her husband on some, uh, some, some, uh, some resentment that he's had towards her that she feels is there in his heart. Okay, so Mary, let's talk to your husband about this thing. Or like, uh, like Bill is gonna be talking to his wife, uh, the big reveal found out that he has been having lustful thoughts about women, right? No, that, that is not what happens on that show, right? Now Mary's gonna be talking with her neighbor and, and, and confessing some, uh, some, some bad things that she's been thinking about or not telling anyone or some gossip that she's been spreading, right? No, when you turn into a daytime talk show, it is like, we're going to find out that how Bill cheated on his wife, right? We're going to find out um, about, how, about how someone beat somebody up, right? You turn to those shows, and it's immediately like, oh, I definitely want to see what's happening here, because we can all agree that what's happening here is wrong, and it is not something that should be happening. Our society has even agreed this is not cool, right? And so we think it's interesting to, read, to watch these shows where people talk about these crazy things that happen in their lives. And the reality is, of course, According to the Sermon on the Mount, if Jesus was talking to people about what was going on in their lives, he'd be highlighting things that most of us look at and just go, that's not a big deal. Like everybody does that. That's like a normal thing. That is not worthy of TV time. That is not, that is not newsworthy. But that's the kind of righteousness that he's talking about. And that makes it very distinct. And so we're forced to take seriously things that most others would simply not take seriously. We'll just say, that's not a big deal. No, 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 no. That's not why things are decaying. That's not why things are falling apart. Anger is not the problem. The way people act on it sometimes is the problem. Lust is not the problem. That's a perfectly normal thing. It's the way that people sometimes let it get out of hand and allow it to wreck things and, make them make, and allow them to make choices that they regret that hurt their families or things like that. We see it as unnecessary because we say that's not really what causes the decay. And so if we trust God, as Jesus is telling us this, what he's saying is remain distinct. True, true distinctiveness is so clear and obvious um, when it's there, right? Here's some examples of distinct. A mother who loves her children not because she needs their love in return, not because she needs to have a great family that people see and are impressed by and happy with, not because she needs people to see her a certain way, and not because she wants a certain kind of life, but because she is so fulfilled by God, her identity is rooted in him so much that she is free to love and give without demanding back in return. That is a very distinctive thing that does not exist much. Distinct as a husband who loves his wife, not because he wants something from her or because she makes him happy enough or because he thinks that she deserves it all the time, but because he can give to someone else out of the fullness of he was received from God. 
Distinctiveness is often a marriage that lasts. And why does it last? It's because when people enter into a season of marriage where they go, this is not fulfilling for me anymore. It has started to occur to me that I might be better than this person. And they're holding me down. The distinctiveness is saying, that's not why I'm married to this person. Distinctiveness is saying, I am fulfilled enough by God, that God is enough for me, and that I trust him and what he says, marriage is. That I choose to go through this season with hope, knowing that. That is distinctive. That is very different. A person who cares about those who are poor, those who are hurting, those who are marginalized, but doesn't care just because it makes them feel good for it or because it makes them appear good to other people. Jesus is going to talk about this. It's one of the most convicting things in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you think it's good to just do good for people? Lots of people do good for people. We look good to one another when we do good for people. How do you do it in a way that your left hand, he says, doesn't even know what your right hand is doing? A person who lives this way is distinctive in a very radical way. And all of these things, these are the things that stop the decay. These are the things that reverse it in relationships and in families and in homes and in our cities and in our world. But these are big things. If you were to, um, and in our culture, which is constantly changing and as we're a part of it, constantly being affected by it, there's always different things that seem more distinct than others. Things that Jesus calls us to that seem more distinct because of where we're at as a society, as a culture. Because there's always a few that I think rise to the surface. I was thinking about this this week, and I think there's a couple. I think one of them is the idea of, of being known, okay, by God versus being known by people, okay? We're very connected in the society that we live in, okay? Technologically, we're very connected. It's very easy for me to reach out to anybody, to a group of people if I want to. I can just blast the internet with something and everybody sees it. Um, or we're just physically more connected, you can get, get in a car, you can get in a plane, you can see people. There's really no limits to who we can see if we try hard enough, right? We're very connected, much more connected than we ever used to be. Um, and so as a result of that, we have come to depend on people, both relationships with them and then what, what the, how they see us. We've come to depend on the affirmation that we get from just knowing they're there and they care about us and they, and they think about us. And, and, it, and it makes it difficult for us to care about being known by God above even being known by others, okay? If something hard happens in my life, I could pull out my phone, I could text 15 people, and I could say, pray for me right now, okay? And then as the texts start coming back in with the encouragement and the help, I immediately receive, like, feelings of comfort, feelings of joy, feelings of some validation knowing that others are going through it with me, that others see what's happening, and that I'm not going through this alone. And in that whole process, you know what the hardest thing is for me to do? is to stop and talk to God about that thing that's happening. People experience this. There, there, is, there, is, there are few pains in life I imagine could be harder than losing your spouse, especially if you've been married for a long time. And the reason this is so painful for people, especially if they've been married for a long time, is because you have lost the person who knows you better than anyone else. They've known you longer than anyone else oftentimes. They know you on a level that other people don't know you. And so when they're gone, you're left asking the question, who even am I without a person to really know these things about me? 
now that they're gone. And the fire that that brings, the refinement that that brings, is when it forces us often to go, God knows me. And he tells me to know him. And he's enough. So to not, like, how crazy is this, right? To not need people in a society in which we are completely dependent, it seems, upon each other for every validation we could possibly have. That is distinct. That is, that is crazy. I, I was, and this isn't just like a technology thing or anything like that, because like I was, I was telling the first service, when I go to my parents' house, um, I always walk by my mom's office and I see this bookshelf where she has my senior picture. And I'm like, it's like, a, it's like, a, like a cross to a vampire when I see my senior picture, just because it wasn't a particularly great time for me. And, uh, and I would say I hadn't, uh, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't very impressive looking senior in high school. And, and she just, she's got it there front and center, really big in a frame. And I walk by it and I'm like, <sighs> like that when I see it. And some of you know what that feels like. And I'm like, mom, just change it. Just get a new picture, right? But she loves it. She loves that picture. And people come by, I'm like, when people come by and you say, oh, that's my son, right? No, it's not. That's not your son. Okay, that was me when I was a senior in high school. And that is definitely not what I look like now. I'll give you a new picture, but no matter what I do, it's still there, okay? And a lot of you know what that's like. Maybe your parents have that. Maybe you're a parent. You're like, oh, I've got all these pictures everywhere, right? They're framed. They're hung up. They take up like, like whole tables, tables taken up by photos, right? Just one after another, after another, right? Like, like on display in a, muse- in a museum, right? And it's because these relationships matter a lot. If there's a fire in my mom's house, I guarantee you, she's running around that house. Animals are going to like burn probably. She's running around that house. No, she wouldn't let them burn, but she's running around that house and she's like frame, 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 armfuls, like getting them out the front door, getting them out the front door. If there's a fire in my house, I wouldn't grab any of that stuff. I would grab everything that says Apple because everything that says Apple on my house collectively probably costs more than my house. And so if I can get that stuff out, I've got all my pictures, right? And then I've got everything else. So to my, to my mom, right? Like there is a level of, of pride and even identity that comes in Um, in these kids and her family. She's close to their sisters. She's close to their parents, close to their kids, grandchildren, right? Like these relationships are, are important to us. They matter to us. And so how do we have those and love them and value them without those being the things that very much define us? That is a hard thing to do. That is distinctive. And that is how a person, frankly, would live if God was enough right? That's a challenge. That's a hard thing to do. But it affects the way that we live so much of our lives. The other thing that's hard for us in our culture is the idea of living under the authority of a God. That sounds fun, right? That's a fun phrase, living under God's authority. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, okay, that God, because he created us, okay, the Bible tells us that because God created us, if we are living in submission to his authority, that we are free that we're free under him more than we are without him, which is crazy for people to think about, right? The idea that, because we think less authority means more freedom, but what scripture tells us is that not true. That's not true. It's why I love the parable of the prodigal son that I keep talking about week after week. Because as the son comes home, he recognizes life and freedom is found with my father. It's not found away from him. Why? Because this was all designed for me to be in his household and to be with him. How crazy of an idea is that? The idea that like no matter what happens, that I look to God's word, that I even just talk with God, and I say, as, because how much of life is just confusing? It's hard to navigate. 
We find ourselves in situations and we're wrestling with things that we just don't fully understand. And authority says, I'm going to look to God uh, first and I'm going to look to him primarily before I look to everything else to try to make sense out of what's going on and to try to figure out how I move forward. That's what, that's what it looks like to have authority in life. And scripture tells us that we're free in that, that we're liberated in that, that there's life that comes from that, that there's preservation that comes from that. That is distinctive. Now, his warning to them is uh, don't let your salt lose its saltiness, meaning be distinctive and also don't lower the standard that you have, okay? This is, the great, this is the great problem with distinctiveness. This is the great problem with righteousness is over time, we, all start, we start out strong and then we begin to kind of, kind of, kind of lower the standard. Now, what that standard is we begin to lower that standard. Now, there's, there's, there's a few reasons why we lower the standard, but I'll give you a good example of what that would look like. Um, and this is not a very, like, accurate... Anyway, this isn't how the real world works, but I'm just going to do this anyway. So let's say you're a teacher, and uh, you go to school, and you teach classrooms full of kids year after year. And, and, and you begin feeling year after year like they're not getting it. Like, I'm trying really hard, and they're not learning it and they're not getting it, and, and it's frustrating, and it's discouraging. It isn't like for whatever reason, like maybe it was before, but you get up every morning, and you look in the mirror, and you go, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to work on it, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to teach them. We're going to go through this, even if it feels that way at times, and then one day, um, all the teachers are talking about it together or something in like the teacher's lounge and, 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 you, and you're all talking that you feel the same way and the principal's there and the principal goes, hey, you know what? Again, I don't think this is how it works, but the principal goes, hey, it sounds like we're all having the same problem. So let's just, let's just say maybe it's because like they, we're, we're asking too much of them or we're doing too much with them. So let's change that and let's lower that. And as a result of that, look, now we have relief, Right? Because you see, lowering of standards is a combination of two things. It is inconvenience, and it is consensus. When things get hard, we often will push through the things that are hard because others around us agree with us that they're things that we should be pushing through with. But when things get hard, and then everyone around us starts to go, no, that isn't something that I probably need to do, then we go, oh, okay, right? In fact, it, our society will continue to often push for things saying like, like, this is something that is important even though it's hard, but really the reason we're pushing for it is because we all want to push for that thing. And so the lowering of standards is a very real thing as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus. This is going to be difficult because it's going to require dying to yourself. And there are going to be times when that difficulty is coupled with you being surrounded by a lot of people. Or depending on where you live or what time in which you live, you're going to have this feeling that like you're, you're the only one that thinks this thing is important. It is when those two things come together that we often are tempted to lower our standard. But he says, remain distinct because if a salt loses its saltiness, it is worthless. He says, it's worthless. You will not bring any value to the world. You will not bring value to these relationships. You will not be effective as my agent for preservation in this world because you have lowered the standard enough that now there's no distinctiveness. There's no effectiveness. 
The other thing, though, that distinctiveness is not, is distinctiveness is not being against something. And Christians, I think, often make this mistake. We think that when we talk about salt and being distinct, that we say we're against the world, or we have to be removed from the world, right? The only way, we say, that I can be distinctive, that I can be pure, is to remove myself, because I'm not influenced then by those things. And that's just a big container full of salt sitting off to the side somewhere, not doing a whole lot of good. Because the truth is that the distinctiveness, that, that purity comes from the source of a thing. It comes from where that salt comes from. That is what dictates our purity. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter who you're around. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If God is the source for you, then you can remain distinct. And you don't have to be against the world. You don't have to see it as you're its enemy or it's your enemy. And you certainly don't have to alienate yourself from it and say, I have to be so very careful because if I'm not, then like I have no control over it. My purity is just going to be gone. My distinctiveness is going to be gone. He goes on to tell them, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, apart from being salt, you are light. You bring light into the world. In Romans 1, we read about what it looks like when God chooses to give the world over, it says, to essentially this sort of rebellion and this decay. Throughout the Bible, there's examples like in the flood where God says, no, I'm going to do something. I'm going to intervene here. I'm going to start over. Uh, but eventually it says that God, um, God gave them over to, to this way of living and this way of being. And what it says in Romans as a result of that is that man exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So man exchanged what is true and chose from that point on more and more and more as it compounds to believe something that's not true and just say that it's true. And in doing so, live in the darkness. That this world is not just a world that's in a state of decay, but it's a world that is in darkness. The problem is that we can't actually see what's going on. The problem isn't just that we don't trust God, but it's also that because of that, we have become blinded to things and we don't see, and so we need light. We need something to illuminate what's going on. We need something to illuminate things in our lives. That is the only way that we can have any hope of moving forward. That is the only way that we can have any hope of moving forward is if someone brings light into the darkness. For almost my whole life, I've been living in relatively Christian-friendly areas. I'll call them Christian-friendly areas because how do you call something a Christian area? I've been living in relatively like Christian-friendly areas. I tell people I'm a pastor, I'm part of the church, I'm ministry, whatever, and usually that's like fine with people. And, but as we talk, I have, um, it, it is rare for me to talk to someone about God and for them to have even close to an accurate picture of who God really is. And it's so much so that I'm completely, completely used to that. And it's, it's just what I expect. It's not something that upsets me or anything like that. Um, but but I, I, people, people, well, I'll talk with them about God. They'll talk with me about God. We're usually not talking about the same thing. Really very close. People usually use God as a justification for the way they want things to be. That's kind of what they mean when they talk about God. And so even if you're living amongst people who would not deny God, 
the existence of God or, or, the, or the value of having God in your life, the, the reality is the majority of people are not talking about what I'm talking about right now when I talk about God, when I talk about light, when I talk about truth, when I talk about reality and things like that. Um, and this has been true, like, for a really long time. I mean, even if you look back to the, like the, the, some of the founding fathers of our country, right? I was, there's this quote that I was reading this week from Thomas Jefferson. He wrote a letter to John Adams and he was writing to him about the Bible and about how he uses the Bible in his life. And this is what Thomas Jefferson said to John Adams. He said, we must reduce our volume um, to the simple evangelists. Select even from them the very words only of Jesus. There will be found remaining the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. I have performed this operation for my own use by cutting verse by verse out of the printed book and arranging the matter which is evidently his and which is as easily distinguishable as diamonds in a dunghill. So what he's saying without, you know, feeling bad about it is he's saying, no, if you want to use the Bible, it's simple. You just cut out the words of Jesus physically. You paste them on another sheet of paper and that's what you go off of. And I think the, the reality is that the, is that Oftentimes, the, the, the smartest people are the ones they, they, who know that they need to distort it in order to agree with it, or who know that they full, like, just don't agree with it, right? Uh, we'll often accept sort of a lukewarm understanding of who God is and an embracing of that, because we're using some of the same words. When in my experience, those who deny the existence of God altogether are often closer to finding him than those who think that they know him and, th- and that they have him. And so we, we are living in, in, a, in a very dark world that is in need of light. Otherwise, we will not be able to make sense of what's going on. And so Jesus is saying that as a follower of mine, you will not only preserve, but you will bring light to, you will shed light on the truth. You'll show people what's true. Isaiah 42 says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, as a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. God does not mince words here in Isaiah. He makes it very clear what we're called to do and what we do and what happens for people if they don't have the light. They're sitting in darkness. He says they're in a dungeon of a prison of those who sit in darkness. We are going to make sense out of things and we're going to show the things that are lurking in the darkness that nobody wants to see. And I'm not talking about like on a social level. I'm talking about on a very personal level. Because what we're going to show is what it looks like to shine lights on our own hearts and we're going to show others we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna tell others that is the only way to really see what's going on, is to look inwardly at yourself, at your own heart, and to see what's going on there. And what we're showing people in that is that God himself is a big deal, not us. Okay, we're a light. We're not a light illuminating ourselves with our own power, our own ability. It's like, the, it's like you probably heard this analogy, it's like the moon, right? The moon doesn't produce light in and of itself. It reflects light off of the sun. And so what we see in the moon ought to remind us that there is a sun that is giving it the ability to do that. 
And when people look to us and they see the light, they ought to see that light and know that that is coming from God himself, that that is about who God is. And it's not just this thing that's supposed to make us look good. And boy, would we love for it to be the other way around. We would love for it to say that really the more people like you and look at you and see a light shining upon you, then somehow that will lead to them being better off and having the gospel. But that's not the way people work. They'll just love you. They'll just follow you. And ultimately, you'll probably lead them astray in some way. It says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In the desert, light is a big deal. Really, there's two things you need to make life happen in the desert. Well, there's three things, really, because you need water, and we'll get to that later. But you need to preserve food if you're going to have life out there, and you need light. Because if you don't have it, you will experience a kind of darkness and a kind of pitch blackness that you have never experienced before. And you'll just have to stop everything you're doing the moment it gets dark because you don't have light. Jerusalem and the light that Jerusalem put off could, could be seen for so far away because of how high it was and because of how bright that light was, but more than that, because of how dark it would have been without the light. If you know anything about the way light works, you know that only a little bit of light can do so much in darkness. And Jesus says to us throughout the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard it said, but I will tell you. You have heard it said, but I will tell you. He's going to say that. Every passage moving forward, he's going to say that. He's going to talk about that. And the reason is, is because you have heard it said means there were scribes, there were Pharisees, there were religious leaders who always had their own take on things. And you could choose to listen to them. And usually you would gravitate towards one because they said things a certain way. They, they took a certain like, spin on things that you really resonated with or liked. And as a result of that thing, that that, that was the message you got, their message, instead of what was written, instead of what Jesus tells us. This appeals to us because the idea of really letting the light illuminate everything is pretty terrifying, right? I mean, like really letting the light all the way in is pretty terrifying. To be completely known, not just even by people, but by God himself, with all of it, with everything, with all the mess and everything, versus the measured amounts that we would want to give. We live in a world, uh, we live in a society that boasts about its ability to be transparent and open and messy and embrace all of that, and none of that is true. We just figured out a little while ago that no one's going to believe you if you tell them everything's fine. And we used to have confidence in people when they told us nothing was wrong with them, right? We liked that. Now, I think we like it more when people give us just enough, okay, that we know that they're being real, but not too much, right? Right? You all probably know what that's like. You, 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 you know, you, you, even, even someone doing this, even someone giving a sermon, you're like, oh, that was good. No, they're, they're, they're great. No, they're real. Oh, yeah, just a real person. No, that's good. Totally relatable. Whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't know that was going on, right? Don't worry. I've never done anything like that. I've never done anything bad. I've never said anything, thought anything that you would be uncomfortable with as your lead pastor. Okay. But other people do that, right? The truth is, we have gotten very good at giving people just enough and calling that real and that the light. And that's not what it really is. That for all of us, it's just as terrifying as it would have been 100 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago. 
to be fully seen and for the sin in your life to fully come out. Not in the little way that you think you can manage it and handle it, but just it all is exposed and come out, comes out. One of the people that I admire the most is this pastor um, of a church in, in Bakersfield. When Ellie and I used to live there. Um, he was the lead pastor of a large church and he stepped down one day and he just gave a sermon and he said, I'm stepping down because I've been struggling with pornography. And um, by most people's standards, it's not even what you would consider to be that big of a struggle. But I know myself well enough to know that there's no way that I can really deal with this and still be in this position because I'm just never going to really fully deal with it. It's always going to be in light of keeping this church going a certain way or how people see me a certain way. And he was, he was crucified for that by so many people. And I, and I thought that was the most commendable thing that I had seen someone do in so long. Someone who said, it is more important for me to completely bring my sin out into the light and know that it gets dealt with because my family is more important than any of this stuff. My marriage is more important than any of this other stuff. And in truth, sometimes those are the things that have to happen for us to really say, this is the light and it's shining on the sin that is there. True rest redemption comes from exposing things to light in their entirety. Then restoration can begin. What Jesus is talking about here in salt and light is he is basically saying this. He is saying it is completely ridiculous to think that you could call yourself a follower of mine, that you could call yourself a disciple of mine, and you not be salt and you not be light. If you are not those things, then you are a follower in name only. And a follower in name only is useless. This is what he's saying. He uses the word useless. He says thrown out, trampled underfoot, okay? He's saying no one's got any use for somebody who says Jesus is great, I'm a Christian, I'm a disciple, but doesn't actually seek to understand and live what it means to be salt of this earth and to be light in the darkness. He says it's useless, which is not what we want to believe oftentimes. We would like to believe that there is like, you know, he'll take some, you know? And so really, I think what he's saying here, and I think that it's important that we understand it, is, listen, if you're not, that's fine. Say you're not. But if you are going to live this way, you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, be salt and be light, and know that that's the job description that you're signing up for. There's all kinds of people who I think, imagine if you just had a friend who compulsively lied about everything, right? Who just said, oh yeah, I'm a part of that family. And then you went and talked to them. They're like, uh, yeah, no, they're definitely not a part of my family. I think they like came over once and had pizza, but they're not a part of my family, right? You know, or you, like the World Series, you talk to somebody who's like, oh, I've always loved the Dodgers. They're like the best. And you're like, no, you're not. I went to your house, all this other stuff. I think you're just saying that because they're in the World Series or something. You, you, if you met somebody who just very casually said things were true that they maybe wished were true or that they were hoping to at one point be true in their life, you would just look at that person as untrustworthy. You would look at that person as not genuine. And so why do we do it? Why, why follow Jesus, be a disciple of Jesus when it seems that he has this job description that comes along with it? It's not just a matter of taking things from him and life gets better from that point on. He's like, you're going to work. A disciple and a follower of mine will be salt to the earth and will be light to the world. And wherever they go, those things will exist. Number one, because it brings life. 
And number two, because it's true. Because it's true. Because God really is our creator and our authority. Because Jesus really is his son and he came and lived and did these things. And knowing that, then yes, we want to live in the light rather than stay in the darkness. We're going to spend some time worshiping and we're going to take communion as we do that. And I love that, we, that we, when we take communion, because Jesus said it himself. He said, do this often because you will be tempted to forget what I've done and what has happened. You will want to believe that what this is is you being good and you trying hard and you working hard and you showing me that you're great by yourself. What, what we remember is not just the fact that Jesus is a teacher and a mentor and a person that we could follow who tells us how to live, that Jesus is the life himself, that he died so that we could be alive that he himself did that so that we can follow him. Not because we're good enough, but simply because we trust him. So as we, we're gonna pass around the elements and then I'll come back up and I'll um, kind of lead us through as we take them. And, um, and we're gonna remember that. And I would encourage you to spend some time being grateful and reflecting upon what he's done and how big of a deal that is for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, for who he is and what he's done for us. We pray that we would be people who are salt in this world, that we are light. I have been so blessed times when I've been able to be in situations where I can see that the truth you have shown me in your word, that the things you have brought me through in following you, they actually do bring about life. That they preserve what is otherwise decaying. And I have been so blessed at times when I have seen these very same things bring light into darkness. We are called to live that way, Lord, but it is difficult at times. And it involves first embracing these things ourselves. And so I pray that we would do that. That as we take communion and remember what your son's done for us, that we would be grateful above all else. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You know, this morning we prayed about the persecuted church in the world. Um, and if you know anything about the church globally, you know that there's this unbelievable dichotomy in which the countries in which people are often the most persecuted are the places where the gospel is exploding with the most growth. Um, and oftentimes the countries where it is easier to be a Christian are the places where we are lulled into a sense of, of almost complacency. Um, we have a great privilege of living in a place and, uh, and, and practicing our faith in a place where we are free to do this very thing, to gather. Um, we're free to go out and to be salt and light in a way that many in the world aren't free to. But the struggle is for us to not allow that to lull us to a place of not actually doing it in our everyday lives. And so the challenge for us as a church is to be able to, to live here and have these freedoms and use them for the sake of the kingdom itself being advanced. Amen? Amen? All right, God bless you guys. Have a great week.